Hey there, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of The Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure every week to share with you the founders, the farmers, the innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode was actually really eye-opening for me. I was familiar with the concept we'll be discussing, which are bioplastics, but this conversation left me beyond bullish about their future potential. Bioplastics is, you know, it's just like it sounds. It is the form and function of a plastic, but it's made with biological, in most cases, plant-based materials. This has numerous advantages, which you could probably imagine, but we'll discuss in detail here today. What really shifted my paradigm on the potential here was comparing bioplastics in my mind to two other segments that we're all familiar with. First would be the rise we've seen in alternative energy in recent decades and the ability for these alternatives to continuously lower their costs relative to fossil fuels and the massive business opportunities that came with that industry building. Second is the rise of plant-based proteins. They're often praised for their sustainability relative to animal agriculture, but I would argue that bioplastics have an even stronger argument compared to conventional plastics that are so ubiquitous in all of our lives and worse in our oceans and in our landfills. So when you look at the potential trajectory versus where it is today of what we saw in alternative energy and what we're starting to maybe see in these plant-based proteins... Could bioplastics be next? And does it have this explosive opportunity that we're seeing in those other two segments? And and I think, yes, uh, you listen today, you be the judge, but I'd be surprised if you didn't think this was a compelling argument. Anyway, here to discuss this all is Mark Remert. He's the CEO of Green Dot Bioplastics. And before I tell you more about Mark, I'm actually joined once again on this episode by the venture partners from Fulcrum Global Capital. I'm partnering with Fulcrum on this series, highlighting some of their portfolio companies, and we've already had some great ones, PNP Optica in episode 208, Covercrest in episode 213, Microgen Biotech in episode 217. In each of these episodes, Dwayne, John, and Kevin, the venture partners at Fulcrum, have joined me to share the investor perspective on the company. And they're back here to do that today, talking about this company, Green Dot Bioplastics. Here's managing partner Dwayne Kentrell. Green Dot takes agricultural waste and or natural inputs and creates bio-based degradable resins that replace the use of petrochemical-based plastics. And so uh, the difference is that to be kind of USDA-approved biodegradable in a municipal composting environment, if you get a 10% degradation in a year's time, you can call yourself biodegradable. His product reduces or degrades 90% in a year's time in your backyard leaf pile. So not even municipal composting. So it's highly degradable, but it's activated by super bugs or natural bugs in the, in the environment and stuff. The the reason why we uh, became the the lead investor in, in, in green dots latest round a year ago of financing was because of the discovery uh, and development of a low cost marine degradable bioplastic. Now, this point is an important one. A low-cost marine degradable bioplastic will first and foremost help clean up our oceans, which, as you'll hear shortly, are filled with a disgusting amount of non-marine degradable plastic. 
But the low cost makes it viable for single use plastics, which, as the name implies, is the type of plastic we throw away most often. This is certainly an interesting solution to a problem venture partner and CFO Kevin Lockett says is growing in the public's eye. We believe that there are tremendous tailwinds in the market for this new low-cost marine biodegradable plastic that they have. I don't think you can pick up a newspaper and within a week not see some article about how plastic is killing our oceans, it's, it's killing our fish that are out in the oceans and sea life, et cetera. Uh, and so now you talk about having not only a solution, but a solution that is at equal to or lower cost of traditional plastic. Our hope is that this becomes sort of a no-brainer for all of the packaging companies out there that have all these single-use disposable plastic situations like clamshells and bags and straws and so forth. The other thing that's exciting for us about this company is I don't think we could have a better plastics team in place. Mike, the R&D guy, is fantastic, but Mark, the, the CEO, 30-year Dow Chemical. And so he understands plastics in and out, not just the biodegradable side, but he also understands the traditional plastics extremely well. And so he ran one of the largest divisions for Dow for a number of years. And so that as well is very exciting for us with Green Dot. So we obviously are working with a huge problem here and a novel solution, but that's not enough to make a great business. Venture partner and general counsel John Perriam says none of this matters unless the product works and is economical. If you take a look at the plastics market, plastics are ubiquitous because they're cheap and because they work. And if you don't have both elements of that, it doesn't matter what the new technology is. It's not going to have the widespread adoption that we're looking for. And that was the key element uh, when we looked at Green Dot was not only that it worked, but that it worked at a price point which was at or below what's currently out there. So we believe it'll fit both the utility and the cost necessary for widespread adoption. Okay, thanks to John and Kevin and Dwayne for their perspective. But now let's get into our featured conversation. Once again, this is Green Dot CEO Mark Remert. You heard Kevin mention a minute ago that he had a successful 30-year career with Dow Chemical before Green Dot. So he has a long history in the plastics industry. He starts our conversation off by talking about some of their products. Then we move deeper into the case for bioplastics. Here's Mark. So we make the biodegradable rubber. We also make a group of products that are essentially composites. So the average layman would think of a composite as something like fiberglass, where you take some kind of a polymer matrix and then you put glass fibers or carbon fibers or something in there to make maybe a car part or a bike frame or something like that. Well, you can also use fibers and fillers that come from nature to reinforce these plastics instead of things like carbon or glass. So we can take natural fibers like hemp or jute or flax, things that are grown, things that are good for the earth, don't require very much processing, not very many inputs. They don't require a lot of water or a lot of chemicals. And we can take those fibers and we can combine them with plastics, either traditional plastics or with bioplastics. And we can make composites that can be used for building and construction applications or furniture or automotive parts, things like that. We also make plastics that are very much like traditional 
plastics that you might see on the shelf in any big box store. We can make those out of materials that allow them to biodegrade at the end of their life. So they could be used in consumer products and containers, your typical consumer package that you would see on the shelf, either holding food or pharmaceuticals or cleaning supplies. Uh, we, we all are familiar with the millions of different kinds of consumer product containers that we buy. And your customer is going to be the manufacturer of these products. Is that right? Our customer is typically the brand owner or the OEM as we call them. So maybe a consumer product packaging company or an automotive company or a pet supply company, toy companies, uh, building and construction, they decide that they want to use one of our materials in one of their applications. And then they have to work with the manufacturer to get that final product produced. In many cases, the OEM has their own in-house manufacturing, and they may make the products themselves. In other cases, they go outside to a third party to a custom manufacturer to produce those plastic products. And I know this is going to vary wildly from product to product, but you know, in, in terms of general principles, as you're looking at something, you have to basically identify, I mean, a lot of things, but one of them is how long should the usable life of this product be? You know, when should it biodegrade or, you know, when is too early to biodegrade, I would guess. So how do you go about that sort of thought process? Well, the first thing is to understand biodegradation itself. Biodegradation is a natural process whereby microbes can convert a material back into compost and CO2. So the carbon is, is released as CO2 and the humus or the organic matter is returned to the earth as, as compost. And so we're all familiar with leaves composting in a, in a pile or food scraps in our backyard composting. And for that to occur, it takes four things. It takes moisture, it takes a certain amount of heat, it takes oxygen, and it takes microbes. So when we make a plastic and we say it is biodegradable, I like to think of it as like a newspaper. If you lay it on your desk, you can come back in 100 years and read the newspaper print because there are no microbes and very little moisture, not much temperature, and it's uh, not in, in an environment conducive for biodegradation. But if you take that same newspaper and put it in your garden compost pile or you lay it on the ground surrounding some plants in your garden or something as a weed barrier, very quickly that newspaper will begin to biodegrade. And so the same thing happens with these plastics. It takes a, an environment conducive to biodegradation before biodegradation occurs. And so for most of the applications that we think about using plastics, you know, they're not exposed to that environment until they are discarded, until they are ready to be turned into to trash, if you will. With traditional plastics, we all know what happens. The trash goes to the landfill, gets sealed in place, and it remains there for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years without any degradation. But with these biodegradable plastics, we can send them to a different place, to a place called a uh, composting facility. Or, as I said, even in your own backyard, 
and there they can biodegrade and return to the earth. Even more exciting and also more problematic is the amount of plastic that we now know that enters our oceans. And we've all seen the statistics. Uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation talks about more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. The National Geographic all year has had a whole series of articles about plastics in the environment and particularly in the ocean. And what we um, are really excited about is developing bioplastics that can also biodegrade in a marine environment. And while certainly we're not advocating that people should throw their trash in the ocean, if it does end up there, rather than turning into microplastics and dramatically affecting the, uh, the ocean life, these materials can also gently biodegrade in a marine environment. That's incredible. With something like this that can have such an you know astounding impact, obviously there's been some big barriers to getting it to this point. So maybe if you could elaborate a little bit more on, just to oversimplify it in question form here, the, the hard part of this, of the, the big barriers to getting to the point that you're at now where you can offer these alternatives. Cost is the biggest barrier. We've been working on bioplastics, and I say we uh, scientists, engineers, scholars, researchers have been working on bioplastics for you know 20 years or so. Compared to traditional petroleum-based plastics that have been under development for you know a century and a half, so we're relatively new to the game, and as a result, we're starting from scratch, small volumes compared to traditional petrochemicals. And with that comes higher cost, just purely economy of scale. Interestingly enough, the plant-based inputs for these plastics generally are cheaper than oil. So, you know, someday in the, in the future, we would expect that bioplastics would be very cost competitive with traditional petroleum-based plastics. But until we reach that same size, that same scale, they're going to be more expensive. And as we all know, cost is always a, a hurdle when seeking high growth. The other thing is that bioplastics today, for the most part, do not have the same kind of engineering properties as traditional petroleum-based plastics. So they're maybe not able to handle as much heat in some applications or or maybe they're not as tough. They don't have as much impact resistance. Maybe they're not as strong. Uh, maybe they don't have what we call a high tensile strength or a high modulus strength. So in many cases, they are lesser physical mechanical properties than some of the traditional plastics that we think of. But when you consider half of the plastic in the world is used in some kind of a disposable application where it is simply used one time and thrown away. We think that the bioplastics that we've developed today have plenty of opportunity to replace traditional plastics in many, many, many single-use, disposable, throwaway applications. Yeah, I mean, this, to me, the impact of this 
so much is made over of uh, protein alternatives right now. It's all the buzz. Everybody wants to talk about protein alternatives versus animal agriculture. To me, I mean, I'm comparing apples and oranges here, but to me, this is more exciting in terms of the impact it can have than that. Is it just because food is, you know, sexier than plastic? Um, I think uh, for the average person, this whole world of bioplastics and what to do with your waste and what does it mean to be compostable and, you know, uh, what's the difference between compostable and biodegradable? And it's still very, very confusing. And unfortunately, there are big players with big checkbooks, you know, vested in the old world that are doing everything they can to keep it confusing. So I think the consumer really has their work cut out for them right now, trying to sort all of this out. And in the U.S. anyway, you know, our government has taken a pretty hands-off approach, not mandating uh, many new materials or forcing anybody to make these changes. We still have a lot of space for landfills in this country. Disposal costs are relatively cheap. But year by year, things are changing. Plastics as a whole continue to grow slightly higher than GDP. So maybe, you know, two or 3% a year. But bioplastics are growing 10 times as fast. So growing 20 or 30% a year. So clearly, brand owners, OEMs, consumers are starting to figure it out. They're starting to understand what these materials can be used for. There's starting to be more and more examples of companies that are successfully converting to bioplastics. And so I think it'll be very much like the groundswell that finally happened with alternative energy for a long time. Wind turbines and solar panels seem to be, you know, sort of a really fringe, uh, crazy way to think about making power. It was also very expensive, needed to be subsidized. Today, we see wind farms and solar farms going up much faster than traditional coal fire or gas-fired power plants. And, and I think the same thing will happen with bioplastics. Right. And do you have any sort of a sense on when that might hit a, uh, a catalyst in terms of really you know, rising up into the top of people's minds like alternative energy has? Um, I think it's probably still another decade away. A lot of things have to happen. And again, maybe maybe the alternative energy example is a good one. Tremendous amount of infrastructure has to be built. We all have seen the, the stories about how much it used to cost to produce one kilowatt of electricity from a solar panel versus where it is today. I think it's, you know, 10 times more economical wind power, probably even more than that. Turbines have gotten better. They've become more standardized, same with solar panels. We're going through all of those iterations right now in the bioplastics industry. There's still a lot of companies trying a lot of different things. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of active development. We haven't yet settled into one dominant material, one dominant process, one dominant factory type. So um, still a little bit the early days when it comes to experimentation. 
I know you mentioned earlier that in some of the cases for these products, the kind of manufacturing process has to be slightly different. And so you sell a resin to the brand. And if the brand sends it to a manufacturer, does a manufacturer have to, in some cases, then change their process a little bit to accommodate that? No. Okay. That's the great story here. We can take these bioplastics and we can put them in the same injection molding factory as traditional plastics. They can be molded with the same equipment, the same molds. If you want to make a film, for example, or if you were going to make a trash bag or something, you can use the same filmmaking equipment as traditional plastics. And that has allowed us to grow as fast as we're growing. If the manufacturing process had to change, you know, I mean, this would really be an endeavor. I don't think we would be anywhere near as far along as we are. But today, we run bioplastics in the same equipment and usually in the same plant as people that are also producing with traditional petrochemical plastics. So that that is uh, just an absolute not a barrier to entry. I can't think of the word right now, but um, yeah, that, that's extremely helpful. And for you strategically, you know, as you continue to grow the company, what's top of mind for you next? You know, what's sort of the next milestone you've got your sights set on? We are in the process of developing and commercializing one of these marine degradable plastics right now. And so We've been hard at work the last few years developing uh, marine degradable polymers and processes to make them. We're working with a number of development partners right now on very traditional plastic disposable items that you would think of every day, whether it's food service items, uh, cups, plates, bowls, spoons, forks, straws, things like that, consumer product packaging all kinds of films for use in everything from trash bags and shopping bags to box liners, the bubble wraps, even paper coating itself. We are really focused on taking these marine degradable plastics and moving them into single-use disposable packaging. One common misperception, maybe you'll tell me, I suppose, is uh, that we can just recycle all these plastics and that we just keep using the same plastic over and over and over again because of recycling, as long as we actually do recycle them. Uh, can you talk a little bit about recycling and maybe some of the challenges associated with that? Yeah, we, of course, should recycle everything that we can, whether it's glass or metal or cardboard or plastic. But the reality is today we recycle only about 5% of the plastic that we produce. In fact, it's less than it was 10 years ago and really less recycling on a percentage basis than 30 years ago. So that alone should tell us that something's broken, right? I mean, when our recycling rates are headed towards zero instead of the other direction, we know something's wrong. So what, what's wrong? Well, first of all, recycling is expensive. And so the cost of recycling and then turning that back into a plastic that can be used for something else costs far more than to just make virgin plastic. And so there's just not a market for a lot of recycled plastic. The other big issue is with sorting. So Plastic is not just plastic. There are something like 10,000 different kinds of plastic 
And unless you can get them back into a very uh, homogeneous material, it really can't be used for anything else. So today we have a couple of good recycled streams. High-density polyethylene, which is uh, from our milk jugs, has a fairly high recycling rate. PET bottles are typical water bottles that we think of. Those have a relatively high uh, recycle rate because they can easily be separated. There's a lot of it, and it's easy to get it in a relatively homogeneous mix without a lot of contamination. Every other plastic on the planet has a problem when it comes to, to sorting and contamination and makes it nearly unusable. But here's another huge uh, factor that most people are not aware of. Even when you can get plastic back into a completely sorted, perfectly homogeneous uh, mix, plastic is not like glass and metal. It cannot be recycled indefinitely. Plastics break down every time they're heated. So when you heat and melt and reuse the plastic, it loses a lot of its physical properties. And in fact, most plastic can only be used two or three times before it loses all of its physical strength and is more or less useless and has to be bled off into the landfill stream or ends up in the ocean or something. That's completely different than glass and metal, which can be recycled over and over and over again, even paper. The fibers can be extracted and can be used over and over again. Plastic, that's not possible. Another problem with plastic and recycling, especially in these single-use disposable applications, is that it's, it's virtually impossible to recycle plastic that's been contaminated with things like food or soil or dirt or something like that. So if the plastic has been used for food packaging, food containers, even some things like uh, you know consumer products or cleaners or those kinds of things, you can't really reuse that plastic. So there are a lot of problems with recycling. I wish it wasn't so, but there are a lot of problems and those problems are not gonna go away no matter how much money the big chemical companies spend trying to convince us of the opposite. It's just a fundamental nature of the beast, so to speak. You're up against some pretty large, major established players on the petroleum side of petroleum-based plastics. Do you experience kind of a David and Goliath type of thing? And what types of things are they doing to make it more difficult for this to catch on? Well, there's definitely a big plastic. And, and obviously, they have their own trade associations, their own lobbying groups. One of those groups is spending something like a billion and a half dollars over the next few years to really promote recycling. You know, the big chemical companies would like to have consumers believe that recycling is a viable answer to the plastic problem. As I said, certainly we could do a lot better and we should do a lot better with recycling. So I'm not necessarily opposed to talking about recycling and, and improving it. That's kind of a low-hanging fruit and kind of a no-brainer. We should do that. But even if we got to 25 or 30% recycling rates, which doesn't seem like much, right? But I mean, it's six times more than we recycle now. Somebody's going to have to pay for all of that. And the big chemical companies are not offering to pay you know, for infrastructure and municipalities to manage their waste streams. So 
it's going to be very expensive. But even if we got there, it would still leave 70% of the world's plastic with no place to go. So there is a big plastic and they are not promoting things like bioplastics. But there are also big companies entering bioplastics now as well. So there are a number of startups like us that I think are are very technology-driven, very entrepreneurial, very innovative. We work with big companies and small companies alike. But there are also now big companies entering the bioplastic space, some from the chemical side, but also many from the ag side. You know, companies like Cargill or ADM or somebody like that making investments in the bioplastic space. And is there common inputs from a plant perspective for this process? I think I've heard you call it, you know, it's plant byproducts. So is it a crop that's being grown to become a plastic or is it a byproduct of some other manufacturing process? There's a variety of different plant-based materials. I mentioned earlier uh, fibers. So natural fibers like hemp, flax, jute, canaf, even sisal from agave plants. Those are raw materials that are used more or less in their, call it their natural state. Um, Obviously, the fibers have to be extracted from the plant and there's some processing there, but fairly minimal amount of mechanical effort. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum. All the way on the other end of the spectrum are raw materials that are essentially chemical derivatives derived from plants. So polyethylene, very common plastic used in film or bottles or something like that. There is a way to make polyethylene from ethylene that has been derived from ethanol, which came from sugar cane. So it's 100% renewable. It's 100% plant-based. It's 100% new carbon. It is, in fact carbon neutral or maybe even carbon negative, meaning that more carbon was sequestered growing the plants than was released, you know, by making the ethanol and the plastic and so forth. So there we are essentially making a chemical feedstock, but we're making it from plants instead of making it from oil. And the ethylene that comes from oil and the ethylene that comes from sugarcane is identical. It's exactly the same molecule, but it's a different source. And then in between, there are some other intermediates. We can either have agricultural intermediates where we have extracted a protein, a starch, a carbohydrate, something like that. And we're using that in the uh, polymerization process. Or we might be making another plant-derived chemical feedstock, something like succinic acid which is used in a number of different uh, plastics when it's uh, polymerized or combined with some other chemical. Let's talk more about the inputs, again, from the agricultural side. As you think about bioplastics, you know, catching on in the coming decades, are there crops you think will be winners? I mean, is it those crops you mentioned, flax, hemp, canaf, jute, those types of crops? Or do you see others that will be important? You know, what ethanol has done for corn? Is there a crop that bioplastics might do similar things for? Well, unfortunately for farmers, the bioplastic industry will never use the volume of farm commodities like 
ethanol, for example. We just don't consume that much in terms of feedstock. So the volumes will be smaller. But today, there is nothing going into bioplastics that is grown specifically for bioplastics. So we use materials that we find around the planet in different places, whether it's a fiber or it's some kind of a refined ag derivative like a starch or a protein, a carbohydrate, some kind of oil that might be used as a plasticizer or something like that. So we're so early in the invention and the development of bioplastics that there's nobody growing any specific crops for this industry yet. That'll be interesting to see to see what happens. I could see, for example, some different plants being grown specifically for different properties to make starch out of. There's some polymer characteristics that would be nice to have that isn't available in just standard dent corn or uh, you know something like that, or even if it's coming from Asia, something like cassava. Those are just regular food crops today that are used to extract uh, materials out of for bioplastic. How close is the pricing to the status quo, to old uh, petroleum-based plastics? We have a variety of different products and different price ranges, but in general, we typically tell potential customers that our products are going to be anywhere from 20% more expensive up to twice the price of traditional petroleum-based plastics. Now, if you have a product that absolutely has to be biodegradable and compostable, something like a mulch film used in agriculture where it, it needs to degrade and go back into the earth or some kind of a waste disposal that has to go to a composting facility, then you really have no choice but to pay the higher price because that's the attribute that you're looking for. But if you are a consumer product company and you wanted to make a toy out of a you know, bioplastic material because it's safe, non-toxic, doesn't use any petroleum-derived materials, uh, you know, completely uh, child-safe certified and so forth, then it becomes a cost-benefit trade-off. How much more can I spend to make my toy a little bit more expensive? but to appeal to a different consumer. And that honestly is where we find ourselves with most customers every day. There's some trade-off with more expensive versus all the perceived benefits, whether it's safety, toxicology, image, brand image, whatever they might be looking for in their Mm -hmm. product. Mm -hmm. How much are these customers wanting to know about the source materials in terms of, do they want to know, hey, was it grown organically or is it GMO free or how far did it have to travel you know, to be manufactured? Are they wanting to know that type of information or is that even possible to find that out for them? The typical OEM absolutely wants to know that. And I think it makes sense if they're willing to spend more money, if they're basing their brand reputation, they're going to be very interested in knowing you know, why is this more sustainable? Where did it come from? How was it produced? And of course, it's ironic because they never ask those same questions to the petroleum guys, right? I mean, you just buy your standard petroleum-based plastic and never think twice about it. Yet for us, 
we constantly have to have the answers to all those questions. And some of those questions are expensive to go get the answers for, but there's certainly much more testing, much more certification, much more compliance around bioplastics than there are traditional plastics. Early on, I used to get quite frustrated with that. My favorite quote was, you know, when Henry Ford invented the car, they didn't tell him that he had to invent the interstate highway system, the toll booth and the coffee cup holder, you know. So it it seemed quite unfair that we were expected to have every answer to every problem when we were just really uh, in our infancy starting out. But I think because people did want to know that, it did force us to be much, much more careful about any claims. We did develop tests from third-party labs that can validate, certify, and have compliance standards around our materials. So it's made us a better industry going forward. But I have to say that early on, it, it seemed a bit much and very much your David and Goliath situation. Well, with all this, I mean, coming off of a successful 30-year career and starting this very ambitious company on a scale that ultimately can actually make an impact on the world and not not hyperbole, what keeps you going to do all this? I mean, to fight these battles on a daily basis. I just really, really take a lot of pride in what we're doing. It's very close to my personal life, I guess you might say. I live on a farm and ranch out here in the Flint Hills of Kansas. I'm 12 miles from town. I don't have any trash pickup. So literally, you know, I have three different composting facilities at the house, either in the barn or out in the garden. We do a couple of organic market gardens for the local farmer's market. So every day I can watch these sustainable processes with my own eyes. I watched the tall grass prairie, and I know that that grass growing is sequestering more carbon into the earth than an equal amount of area in the Amazon rainforest. So I start with that, and I can see how these agricultural materials can end up in our plastics. And at the end of life, I can take these plastics and I can put them in one of my composting piles, or I can take them to town the recycling center. But I can really see the difference versus how I used to live in uh, Southern California 30 years ago, where everything went into the trash. And a small family would generate just a tremendous amount of trash. I think the trash man used to come like twice a week or something like that. Today, with composting, recycling, Uh, We probably generate one or two trash bags a month. You know, that's about it. So I get to live this firsthand. I mean, I get to experience it firsthand. I get to live it. I get to see it. So that, that makes a huge impact on me. Also, starting a company with great young people, highly motivated, really sincere about what we're doing, coming to work every day. We used to joke that we woke up in the morning and put our cape on and came to work to save the world. But even after a significant amount of time and a lot of growth and new people, I think all of the people that work at Green Dot 
still feel like that. They still wake up every day just super excited about the opportunities. And lastly, I might say the typical customers that we work with, these are companies that are also trying to make the world a better place. They're trying to bring products to the consumers that they can be proud of, that some thought has gone into that are designed to make better use of these materials. And so some of our customers have some amazing products. And, uh, you know, we take some pride in having been able to do the material development to make those things possible. Fantastic. Well, that's a great place to end. Mark, this has been a really compelling interview. Thank you very much. Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you were hoping to at least mention on the interview? The one thought I would leave you with, and oftentimes people ask me, why should I care? Or who does this really affect? And I like to say every human, every pet, and every domesticated animal on the planet generate massive amounts of plastic waste. So we should all care about this because we're all part of the problem. And by using these kind of materials, we can all be part of the solution as well. But this really affects everyone. And as I said, it goes beyond even us humans. Uh, Our pets and our domesticated animals also generate a lot of plastic waste. So there's something here for everybody. Everybody can contribute. Everybody can be a better consumer. Well, once again, big thank you to Green Dot Bioplastics CEO Mark Remmert for being on the show. It really was a treat to better understand this budding industry. Thanks also to Fulcrum Global Capital for partnering with me on this episode as well as the others. Go learn more about their work and their portfolio companies at www.fgcvc.com. I'm curious, are you as convinced on the future of these bioplastics as I am? I'm on Twitter at Tim Hamrich or reachable via email, tim at aggrad.com. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.